pricing is one of the easiest levers for growth. If you imagine how hard it is to go and win another 10% new customers. So that means all of the, you know, demand gen, the op creation, the sales work, the enablement, the solutions work to go and win that extra 10% of customers, or just putting up your prices by 10%. Um, you know, one of those feels a lot easier than the other one to me. It's our job to tell better stories. And always remember, it's the risk takers that are Welcome to another episode of the Growth Hub podcast. We have an absolute treat for you this time. We recently got to talk to Andrew Davis, the CMO of Paddle. Now, Paddle works with a lot of SaaS companies, so he had great insights into what the SaaS field looks like at the moment and how companies can make sure they continue growing. In the podcast, we talked about levers and barriers for growth for SaaS businesses. We also learned about pricing, especially why it's important to localize your pricing. So here we go. Episode 93 with Andrew Davies. Enjoy. Hello, Andrew, and thank you so much coming to our podcast as a guest. Thanks for having me. Appreciate. So I hate to start a conversation like this on a negative note. But there's no hiding from the fact that uh, world economy economy is going through a pretty rough patch at the moment. Um, and it's been going through that for, for a while now. So it's no news there. And obviously SaaS companies are also starting to feel seriously impacted by that. Um, like we all know what's been happening with the workforce, Salesforce laying off people, uh, not the only company, obviously quite Facebook. a lot of, yeah, quite a lot of tech companies doing that mm -hmm. as well. So um, I know because I've been following you guys, I know you did at Paddle um, recently a research into the kind of state of SaaS companies in general. And um, I was wondering if you could share some findings with us from that. What does growth in SaaS companies look like at the moment in, in a situation like this? Sure. And to give some credence to some of these opinions, I think let's start with the data we're looking at. So Paddle of about 3,000 software companies um, that use our billing systems. We obviously have visibility into their finances. And then we recently acquired ProfitWell, um, who see the revenue of almost 30,000 subscription businesses, mostly software. Um, so we're tracking about 28 billion of ARR. So we've got a really good view on the marketplace. And we can drop a link um, in the show notes to a fuller tweet thread on this from Patrick Campbell um, from ProfitWell. Uh, but across consumer and B2B, yes, it, it's not looking great. Um, you've led with some of the numbers we see in terms of layoffs. Um, and I think we probably haven't seen the end of those yet. Um, but when we see our data, we see that a few other things are happening. Um, cancellations are increasing, and we've been seeing this, you know, in a few spikes ever since kind of the start of the year, actually, uh, when the Ukrainian war um, ha started happening, when Russia invaded Ukraine, and um, the economic implications of that, um, and uh, really we saw consumer leading the charge here uh, as people started cleansing out a bunch of their different subscriptions that they perhaps didn't think they needed anymore. Um, and we've also now seen it in B2B as well. And we've also seen new sales slowing as well. So there's been a few kind of uh, ups and downs across the course of the year, but it's not looking like a good couple of years ahead. And of course, there are outliers here. 
there are companies that are continuing to grow really fast, um, but many are facing significant challenges in new revenue, those two things I mentioned, cancellations and, and new sales, but also with a lack of fundraising options. Um, and so that means there are difficult, you know, difficult years ahead as people could perhaps run out of capital they've raised, because there's a very clear bifurcation when it comes to raising capital. Either you need to grow really fast and aggressively and efficiently, uh, or you have to run for break even. Um, and let's be clear, there are a lot of businesses in the marketplace, lots of SaaS businesses that are stuck in this messy middle. Um, they have growth rates that just aren't fast enough to prove breakout growth, you know, 70, 80, 90, 100, 200% growth. But they also don't have a clear path to break even. Um, so that's a really challenging situation to be in. Hmm. It's um, growing fast and efficiently and scalably is difficult at best of times, <laughs> let alone in a in a situation that we are in right now. So that's exactly. tough. Yeah. So, Andrew, what do you think that are currently the uh, the biggest barriers of growth if you think about SaaS businesses? Yeah. So I think there's the the normal barriers, the kind of trigger points you see in a SaaS business. So that would be you know, finding product market fit until you actually don't know that what you have built fits a market need. There's no point pouring fuel onto that fire. And then there's kind of the process of go-to-market fit. Once you've got something that's matching a market need, do you find, you know, can you find a repeatable and scalable process of bringing that to market? Um, and then you've got all the questions of efficiency um, and how you kind of open up new market segments as you scale from your very, probably very tight ideal customer to new ideal customers over time. Uh, we've just mentioned access to capital, I think is a big barrier to growth right now, particularly businesses that their, their operations were built on the premise of free and easy access to capital. And now that's no longer true. Um, if you've been built in a much more bootstrapped or efficient way, then actually it affects you much less. And then really there's the challenge of balancing acquisition, monetization, and expansion as you scale. So all of those th things are, are things that are on the, the kind of in the boardrooms of the SaaS businesses that we know. Um, and all of those present barriers to growth if they're not dealt with well. Those things sound like uh, barriers for growth that are always there, not only in the situation that we currently are in. Uh, is that right? Yeah, I mean, we're in a, a situation that is marked by, you know, probable economic recession um, for multiple quarters, um, but it's also marked by severe uncertainty. We've come out of COVID. Um, we've got still a backdrop of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. We've got you know, pretty significant economic, uh, sorry, political instability in the US and in the UK. And uncertainty creates lots of challenges and opportunities. So, you know, if you've built a business on, on the basis of access to loads of capital, that's the problem. If you've got a value prop that relies on a growth focused buyer or lots of disposable income, that's a that's a challenge you know if you're starting to build a new business on current fundamentals when you can build strong with with no sunk costs and that's a real opportunity right now if you're able to pivot fast perhaps to a value prop that is around cost reduction then you've got good opportunities um so there's a, a whole bunch of challenges and opportunities based on this situation right now and it's about making sure you can find yourself on the on the right side of that argument well i suppose that's the million dollar question how you can get to that right side right and in relation to that, actually, since a lot of our listeners are marketers, so how can marketing help in a situation like this? So I've just mentioned a few factors that are based on the current circumstance. So let's break those down. Messaging. You know, is your current value proposition 
aligned with the real market need you know runway extension cost reduction um you know flexibility in your your operational costs all of those are clearly going to resonate much more and so if you have a clear value prop that's around that fantastic if you don't working with your product team to understand is there new product features or releases that could help that or is there just a way of messaging this differently where you're serving perhaps a different buyer or a different function or for a different reason so messaging is one um efficiency we spoke about so yeah it's important that you understand your customer acquisition cost and you're sitting within that envelope you're understanding the economics of the business the unit economics of your business the capital you've got the runway you've got to sit within um so that you're becoming more efficient in your marketing uh thirdly I, th I think it's really interesting that there's lots of businesses now that are rediscovering their customers because perhaps yeah. they're finding new customer acquisition really hard. And so they're putting more resource on growing their existing customer base. And we can come back to that in a bit if that's interesting. And then finally, I do think it's really interesting right now that um, some of the smartest marketers I know, and it's certainly something that many of my team are looking at as, as we look into 2023, that we're planning for how we grow an audience rather than just focusing on demand gen. If we're in a world where less um, customers are wanting to buy the services that, that you're offering, then should you also be thinking about how you amass the community, how you build the content-driven uh, audience so that you can you know, accelerate new customer acquisition when the wind does turn in your favor later? Mm -hmm. So there's just a, a few different elements we can think about. Sorry, uh, just before we move on, I was I, I got stuck with that last, last bit there about audience. Um, does that mean community-led growth, or are you talking about a different thing? Uh, I'm not sure I can even define community-led growth. <laughs> um, I, I think when I think about community, I think about a few things. I think is it? it I feel it's just an audience. If it's one person or one brand talking to a base, um, it's a community. When there's also some peer content or peer interactions um, and secondly there needs to be some understanding of what membership means now it doesn't have to be in a formal sense but people are gathering around something and so there's some basic delineation of whether you're interested in this thing or whether you find yourself in this group um, and then that usually is defined by a location whether physical or virtual a slack group or whatever format you're choosing to meet in so those are three kind of elements of community but i don't think it's just about community i think there's people who are not actually looking at community by that definition mm -hmm. but they're investing in in newsletter growth they're investing in you know content uh, production or acquisition they're investing in building out your know, creative to attract their target market um so yeah i think it's it's content it's community it's really thinking about how can we start engaging with the audience that will become our buyers in a few years time uh when the markets do turn hmm. sure so you you mentioned these different elements you got messaging efficiency customers and audience how would you actually um would you single something out or kind of what would be the best part like to start with would you kind of prioritize something yeah i think that really depends on the business i think mm. certainly if you've got a big pool of customers and you've got some levers for growth that'll be the first place i go to um you know how can we make sure we hit our revenue targets off existing customers alone is there a model where we should be taking you know demand resource campaign resource demand dollars and moving that towards our existing customers um and we can talk about a few examples of that if if that's helpful i think um you know in terms of those other ones the messaging one i think is just a really obvious one that most marketers would have 
have already started to do. Um, you know, we do see a few tone deaf marketers right now who are continuing <laughs> to preach this kind of growth at all costs value prop, but most people have, have dialed that back. Um, so yeah, customers, I think is really interesting. And then the efficiency thing, I think is obviously uh, vital for any marketer to, to, to be considering. What is your what is your customer acquisition cost? What is your cost envelope? What, what is your, you know, do you, are you operating on that rule of 40? What's the benchmarks of other companies who are operating at your current stage? And are you becoming more efficient than them? Hmm. So, um, okay. Um, do you actually have any kind of go-to frameworks that to deal with all the challenges and the bits and bobs you just mentioned? Um, probably not something that sits across all of them. Um, <laughs> if we, uh, I think when it comes to efficiency, there's actually just recently been a ton of, of you know, the, the autumn or fall type reports have just dropped from OpenView and I think uh, from Bessemer and a, a few others. Um, KeyBank have dropped theirs as well, where they're breaking down benchmarks um, of their SaaS companies that they're surveying. And so on the efficiency side, I think it's it's in all in everyone's interest if you're in a marketing function or leading a marketing function to go and look at what those benchmarks are so you can have an informed conversation internally you can understand whether you're doing well from a a more kind of best practice or benchmark perspective so that's definitely something that's really necessary um on the customer side you know there's four things i think about as a framework it's how do we engage how do we retain how do we grow and how do we refer um and so thinking about how our programs our communications our resources are set up to help our customers engage with us and each other more um so that's you know learning that's making sure they have a positive experience with every touch point um retain how are we making sure they're not churning uh, growing how do we make sure that they are growing themselves and therefore Hopefully, as part of that, they're buying more services or products from us. And then finally, that referral piece, how are they becoming our best advocates in a market where perhaps some other demand channels are, are drying up? So that's a couple of things I think about. And, you know, uh, when it comes to the audience side of things, um, we, we've got a there's a few places I look uh, in terms of frameworks for this. Um, I think Audience Plus and Anthony's work there have, have got some great frameworks around it. And Patrick Campbell um, from Profit World, part of our business, they've uh, about a year or two ago released their playbook um, for audience growth and their, their media strategy. So we can drop that in the show notes if that's a, that's a helpful framework for anyone. Yeah, I, thanks for mentioning those. We'll definitely in, include that. We are, um, as marketers, we are always looking for way, fr new frameworks that we can use and, and utilize. And actually, on that note, I kind of want to um, maybe even step back a little bit and go back to those barriers of growth that we started this conversation with. And and the first one that you mentioned there was the product market fit. And that's, um, I mean, we work with clients and we always we obviously try to find that. And then even if we found it, then, you know, there might be a new market where we have to figure that out again. And it's it's a common um, I don't want to call it a challenge because it's just part of what we do. So, but I do want to um, ask you about any advice you have uh, to share with our listeners who are, who maybe are in that situation where are trying to figure out the product product market fit. I think there's some great frameworks already in play that you, you and your listeners probably would have come across. I think just to add on to some of those things that um, I found you know practically useful in my journey of finding product fit in a few different businesses um firstly think about not just testing against the product feature but also the overall value prop 
and then the target customer. You know, there isn't one test. Oh, do we have product market fit? You've got to think about the actual product itself, the value prop of how you're describing it and what impact it's having and the target customer. And I think too often we think about it as a static equation um, because we're actually not testing with different types of customer or take testing different types of value prop or different ways of our product delivering that value. So I think it's important to think through those three elements. I think secondly, um, and perhaps building on that, um, I for Sales Impact Academy for several years, I've taught their account-based marketing course. And I find it fascinating that I've tracked over the courses we've done then, it's probably been five or six cohorts, increasingly one, one of the questions I ask is how are you using ABM in your business is this you know you've got a purist ABM approach where everything you do is ABM is it is it adding on a new approach within your existing demand gen or inbound um, or are you using it to test and learn about new markets and I've seen a real big uptick in people using account-based marketing strategy account-based marketing methodology as part of their product market fit experimentation really? so perhaps if you've got a, a horizontal play but you could sell it into all of these different places, then using ABM programs to find out which of those different ICPs is going to respond best to those campaigns. And is that a leading indicator of a market that you should be focusing on? So that's that's the second thing that I think is interesting. And then finally, you know, it's a truism, it's obvious, but please, please, please don't spend uh, to scale until you've got the confidence that you're at that point of product market fit. So those are just a, a few of my top effect thoughts on it. Okay, so... How do you know you have the confidence in product market fit? <laughs> I use the word confidence specifically because I often think, you know, in a rational scenario with low egos where everyone is able to challenge each other and have good quality conversations and learn from customers and have a growth mindset and all of those things, I believe that confidence is a leading indicator for many, many things. It's a, it's a leading indicator for finding product market fit. If you are having customer conversations where you are able to take that insight and refine your product, your value prop, or change your target customer, then confidence that you are making progress should precede the sense of perhaps a more academic def definition of product market fit, which you know some people define as if you take this product away from people, will they you know be up in arms and 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 you know come running to your door, or will they not really care, um, or you know will you know a conversion rate increase, and if you have ten opportunities, will you be able to close eight of them? You know, there's those more academic definitions or, or um, more metrics-driven def definitions of PMF, but I do think confidence is a leading indicator do you have confidence uh, that this market you're selling into is now ready to buy is making use of this uh, and that often precedes some of those metrics we see within the funnel so would it be too simplistic to say that if you're unsure then you don't have product market fit yeah. I think I, I think some 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 degree of uh, questioning is necessary at every stage. When you've got complete certainty, it means you've probably got something wrong. Um, but yes, I I do I do think that when you're in that phase of constantly questioning yourself again relies on you being in a in a team where you're able to challenge each other where you do have customer insight when you're having honest conversations because if those things aren't true then you can have very you can have a huge amount of misplaced confidence which is again a danger. Fair enough. Um how about the next step? So let's say um you found your product market fit and then what? How do you how do you get going with your good fit user acquisition uh, process? It's important to recognize that there are many different ways to go to market. And these are getting better described over the last, you know, couple of years. 
there's yes an, an inbound process there's an outbound process there's a partner-led go-to-market motion there's a product-led go-to-market motion and so i think the first step is to actually read up on all of those different approaches you know so often i speak to founders who are just choosing one of those by default. They've hired their first sales team, and their first salesperson by default, or they're operating an inbound model by default. And it's not because they've chosen that, it was just the only thing they knew or the only thing they'd experienced. So recognize that there are these different go-to-market models. Um, and Sangram over, over at, um, I think it's GTM Partners, is doing some good research into kind of the modern go-to-market motions. So recognize that there's these different processes, test and learn which ones might work best for you. Look at all the data and best practice across all of those different types of go-to-market motion and certain ones of them work much better in, in different circumstances, different price points, selling into different type of businesses in different types of economic climates. Um, and then you've got to define, define your own version. Uh, it's not that there's a cookie cutter type of you know four or five options and you just choose one it's a case of defining what works for you as a business based on you know how much capital you have available how fast you have to grow based on the requirements of raising that capital um based on you know what is the acv the, the cost of the service you're selling the type of customers you're selling into all of those will, will have a play in it so yeah i'd absolutely start off with doing some reading around those different motions so you have something to choose from excellent all right uh, can we go on to some positive things now? <laughs> I thought I thought we'd be doing that. Let's <laughs> can we just talk about something else and barriers for growth. So um, on the other side of the coin, uh, so levers for growth. So what I what do you see as the uh, the biggest growth levers for SaaS businesses in long term? You. So the first you know, way I think about this is the three biggest levers: acquisition, monetization, and expansion. Everything we do in a SaaS business boils down to one of those three. So if we just think about those um, in uh, you know a bit more depth, we've got the acquisition piece. So new customer acquisition. Um, I'm sure we'll come on to some of the buzz around freemium or self-serve later. But you know, when it comes to acquisition, yes, there's these different go-to-market motions. There's whether we acquire these customers, you know, under a free plan, it's whether it's self-serve, whether they have to deal with a sales team, whether we're doing it in one territory, whether we're doing it in many territories. You know, one of our key specialties is in internationalization, winning emerging markets, winning international markets. Um, and so there's there's a whole bunch you can dig into in acquisition. Also going to different customer sizes, you know, segments, you know, perhaps we've been serving mid-market. Is there a play to go and acquire a different segment, up market or down market? Then when it comes to monetization, this is you know a lot around pricing and packaging. So not just the technicalities of pricing and how we describe it, but also what that means for our economic model. You know, do we offer multi-year discounts? Are we trying to get people to pay, you know, for, for longer periods of time? Is it usage-based? Um, is it, you know, based on a, a feature or is it based on some value metric? So there's a whole bunch you could dig into on monetization. And that's a lever that's often underlooked. Um, and then we've all overlooked. And then we've also got expansion. So are we reducing churn? Um, and are we increasing the ability for our customers to spend more money with us? Are there multiple vectors of expansion revenue where our best customers, they can buy more seats or they can buy new features or they can buy more data or they have some form of usage-based pricing where they just grow and we grow as a result. So those are the three things I'd kind of hang all of the different strategies on. So, okay, there's quite a lot that we can continue discussing there. And um, But I do want to make sure that we talk about pricing. It's one of my all-time <laughs> favorite topics. So um, uh, I want to ask you about 
specifically about the research that you guys did um, that we mentioned earlier. And there was when I was reading through it and I, I started reading about pricing and there was so many interesting things there. And the thing that stopped me on my tracks was this sentence. And I quote, the fastest growing SaaS companies are those that experiment with their pricing. Talk about that. What does that mean and, and how does that affect growth? Pricing is one of the easiest levers for growth. If you imagine how hard it is to go and win another 10% new customers. So that means all of the, you know, demand gen, the op creation, the sales work, the enablement, the solutions work to go and win that extra 10% of customers, or just putting up your prices by 10%. Um, you know, one of those feels a lot easier than the other one to me. So pricing is one of your easiest levers for growth. And our data um, shows that companies that change their prices frequently, so they're testing and learning. And this is even kind of talking about which strategy they're adopting or what their price is. But if they change their prices frequently, they see a significant increase in average revenue per user over a few years than those who don't. So we've got a couple of, and I'll try and find the slide for the show notes. So we've got a couple of um, you know, data points on this of customer of customers of ours or, or people within our user base who haven't changed their price for five years. Um, and you know, if we index on that as a flat ARPU and then take people who change their prices once every year or once every quarter, we see the more frequently you change your prices, um, the more your ARPU grows. So there's there's that fundamental kind of truth that we see time and again in our data. And then it's, you know, to go on from that, it's not just about experimenting just with price, but with the metric of pricing. So um, if we take, you know, the two obvious ones to start with, you know, value or feature. So we pay for HubSpot because it, we use the marketing automation tool, or we pay for HubSpot based on how much, how many leads it gives us. Let's take an obvious example there with a, a company we all know. So the value pricing, if you can use value metrics and multiple value metrics, ideally, then generally your growth is higher, your expansion is higher, and your churn is lower than if you're using feature pricing. So it's the type of pricing. And then also it's thinking about, if we go back to the internationalization point, it's thinking about you know, willingness to pay in different regions. It's thinking about currency. Um, you know, if you, if you actually don't have packages that are suitable to people in other territories, they can't buy from you. And particularly in a self-serve world, world, that's really important. The friction of just a dollar on your checkout when you're in lots of other territories is significant. Um, and also each of those territories has a different willingness to pay based on their GDP, economic climate, disposable income, the importance of this software versus local market competitors. And so you've got to dig into those things as well. And that's part of testing your pricing and learning. See, I find this so interesting, this idea that changing your uh, pricing so often, I mean, even if you do it yearly, that's for me, that's fairly frequently. And I'm wondering, do you have an explanation for the psychology behind that? Like, why does that change or why does that affect the growth that much? Great question. <laughs> I can't remember the author. It was it's one of those uh, classic 80s business books, I'm sure, which is that uh, the, that what you inspect, you can expect. Um, but, you know, there is that that kind of intuitive belief that if you are focusing on something uh, and if you're measuring something, then you start to see results from it because you're looking at it, you're optimizing it, you're trying new ways of improving it. Um, and so I think the first thing is that most people set their price when they launch their product and never even come back to it. So there's no focus on that being one of their growth levers. Um, and therefore, it 
does it can't be optimized it's never optimized in terms of it being you know the, the amount of times you change your price being correlated with growth um i think I, I think of it much more intuitively which is that if you are testing different forms of pricing pricing metrics pricing points packages then you're going to be learning and it's the learning that correlates with growth more than necessarily the price changes and so hopefully if you're changing your price every quarter what you're doing is getting feedback um, from your customers and in your you know book of business and your revenue as to what things you know what price points what price metrics are correlating with better conversion with more sticky customers with customers Customers that expand uh, faster, um, and so it's the learning that I think you're baking in that's actually correlating or, or causing that growth. So, what do you think that? Because it uh, sounds like it's the easiest way to do it. How come so many organisations just don't do it? Why is it so scary? Like, oh my God, they're going to churn if we're going to do this. So what do you think? I think it's it's hard to conceptualise. Mm -hmm. um, it's high friction because you know it has impact often on lots of different teams um it has impact on your existing customer base so the communications are high friction are we going to charge customers differently is it for new business what about people who are in deal cycle what happens if we do this again very quickly so i think there's 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 a big amount of friction um and and also it, it's interesting it's not a muscle that has been built in many SaaS businesses if they are not mature but we so we have a a pricing consultancy called you know it's a product based consultancy called Price Intelligently that serves the who's who in the SaaS zoo with with pricing strategy, um, you know and Price Intelligently the team are absolutely superb. I love the time I spend with them. Um, super smart and I think one thing that we're noticing in the market is some of our engagement shapes are changing a little bit because. SaaS businesses are starting to have a pricing manager within their teams in a way that they haven't previously. And so it's a function that is now being recognized and resourced in a way that it just wasn't five, six years ago. And so I think that's that's one of the biggest issues too. No one has owned it as a, as a, as a, a thing within the business. So if um, any uh, SaaS marketer or leader listening to this are now inspired by starting to, inspired to start, um, experimenting with their pricing any advice for them how they should go about doing it or start doing it there's lots of good research on this we've got much of it at price uh, at priceintelligently.com and profitwall.com um open view i think also um the, the the vc fund they've also got a lot of good information on pricing as well notion capital have as well um and a place I go when I wanted to read about this first was the pricing page teardown, which is actually a show that the ProfitWell team, part of our business, create. And they take um, you know, one or two companies each episode and they break down their pricing pages, tear down their pricing pages, look at the psychology, look at the economics, do some research with users of those products and then come back with a philosophy and a strategy on how it can be improved. And so that's really light watching. Uh, I think they're like seven series of that up at the moment. You know, many, many episodes to dig through. So find a company that you know and you love um, and just, you know, Google pricing page tear down and you'll find lots of episodes there to dig into as the, as the first point of call. Perfect. Mm -hmm. um, this is, <laughs> I feel a, a bit divided by this this uh, topic because on the one hand, I'm getting so excited about this dynamic mm -hmm. pricing, but then at the same time, 
um, I know that uh, there are still a lot of SaaS companies who don't even show their pricing on their website. Like it's behind back door and you have to talk to a salesperson to even find out about it. And then it might, it might not even be clear at that point. So um, I'm wondering, um, Okay, I think enterprise size is a is a category of, of its own. I think I, there I can see that you don't necessarily always want to or can put the pricing up on your website. But if we leave the enterprise companies aside for a minute, are there um, good reasons why some why SaaS companies shouldn't have pricing on their website? More broadly, I think about this as a trend we're seeing where the buyer is taking hold of more of the sales process and is walking into the final stage of that sales process a lot more informed um, and is less reliant on the sales rep or the active selling of the company, the, the vendor, the company that's providing the services or product. And so pricing is just one element of that, you know, how you demonstrate value, whether you give a free trial. Um, there are a whole bunch of other things that you might be doing there. It's interesting for me in the self-serve world, there are an increasing number of businesses that aren't even asking for an email address before you try their product now, because they want to have zero friction in front of you experiencing the value that they're delivering. So when it comes to pricing, you know, we've all been in that situation. We're poking around, trying to do a vendor kind of selection process between a few vendors. And there'll be a few vendors who just don't show pricing. Increasingly, I am seeing this personally and in the people I talk to, and I know there's research out there in the wider market, that in several, you know, in, in, in many markets, you will literally be removed from that vendor selection process if you don't show pricing, right. because you don't even meet the basic requirements of that 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 researcher, that person in the, in the team who's looking at it to want to even move you to the next stage because there is friction involved. Because in order to get pricing, I have to hand over 30 minutes of my time. I, I click on the button that says get started. And instead of getting started, I get rooted to a chili piper form and I get booked into a calendar of an SDR. And I have to listen for 30 minutes uh, and answer lots of questions before I actually get any indication of what their pricing is whatsoever. And that's just not very buyer centric. We're not actually serving the needs of that buyer. So um, I think there are lots and lots of good reasons why you should pro show pricing. Um, there are lots of reasons why people feel hesitant about it. You know, the competitive threat, whether there's a race to the bottom and people will go and undercut them. I think that, you know, people feel insecure over whether they're leaving value on the table. Because if you don't show prices, when you get into that final stage scenario, um, you can optimize the price you're offering based on needing to close the deal, uh, perhaps your cycle as a business, and also based on, you know, whether you're going to deliver value, whether there's some risk involved on the customer side or your side. Um, um, and based on their economic worth, you know, if they're a customer that's got lots of money, lots of budget, you can, you know, go in with a more full fat pricing option. Um, so I totally understand that there are those, you know, very well justified reasons why showing pricing public, public uh, in public is, is tough. I just think that they're reasons that the market is shifting beyond to the to the, you know, to a significant degree. Right. Excellent. Before we go to the self-serve, I know, no, I, I know go, that's the next topic, but <laughs> fine. I actually do want to uh, go back a little bit before we got into this pricing rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> because They're already in it, darling. <laughs> <laughs> um, when, um, we talk, when you talked about the levers for uh, SaaS businesses, success, and you mentioned acquisition, monetization, and expansion, in that answer, you you talked a little bit about, um, and this is related to pricing a little bit. You talked about the different um, 
kind of ways to price your or like make different payment uh, possibilities in different markets uh, for, for your product. And I know that's something that you, you also talked about in the report as you, I think you called it true localization. And I think that's also really interesting. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, like how does, because I do think that there's a tendency to, when you expand to a new market, uh, you know, using dollars is very easy. You know, it's a fairly universal, you know, money, but uh, that might not actually always be the best way forward. So can you um, talk a little bit about how does it affect if you use different currencies and then obviously also different payment options for that? What kind of impact does can that have for growth? Yeah, I, I should have uh, loaded up the report before we came on to this. Sorry. <laughs> I, might, I might forget some of the percentages, but um, it, it's pretty significant. Um, so if we think about a few things here, firstly, let's just think about dollar. Um, so, you know, I'm going to say correlation rather than causation here, but where we look at our, you know, 3000 customers that are using paddle, we see that if they add an, if they go from a, a dollar to, um, or, you know, whatever their core currency is to two currencies, then I think it's about a 12, it's correlated with about a 12% increase in growth rate. And if they go to 25 different currencies, it goes to a cor correlates with a 24 and a half percent growth rate, uh, increase in growth rate. Um, and so again, it's pretty intuitive, right? That um, there's just going to be more friction with someone working out the price point of something in dollar with their home country and having to do that calculation in their head. And it probably, if they're in a country which doesn't have a, a, a stronger currency, probably the inbuilt assumption um, also uh, that, that it's going to be more expensive because it's denominated in American dollars. Then there's payment acceptance methods. And we see the same kind of increasing growth when you offer different types of payment acceptance methods. So, um, you know, if we start off and you've just got the ability to take a credit card, um, that might be fine. But then some people want to pay by Google Pay or Apple Pay, or they want to pay by PayPal. And different regions have very clear um, you know, uh, propensities in those different uh, in those different payment methods. And so it's important to offer a range of payment methods as well as a range of currencies. There are other things as well. Um, I can't remember the exact percentage, but we see significant friction when um, you don't bundle for B2B software, when you don't bundle tax, um, when you do bundle tax into the price because you artificially inflate the price because mm -hmm. sales tax for most companies, they're not going to they're not going to pay it because they're above the threshold and it's going to be remitted. And so, um, you know, that's something where if you're offering something to companies, to businesses, if you're baking in local sales tax, then it probably seems more expensive than that customer is used to paying for comparable services that don't bundle. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of localization implications you need to take care of there. Uh, and you know, you know, uh, I'll put the pitch in. I mean, that's what Paddle is built for to take care of all of that for you with one click. But you know, if you're not using something like Paddle, then yeah, there's a high degree of complexity when it comes to currency when it comes to payment methods when it comes to tax thanks for going going that over i feel like i'm being a uh, free advertising for you guys for your <laughs> research that you've been yeah. doing but i do yeah. i did find it interesting and i highly uh, recommend people reading that i find it quite interesting as well the localization of pricing i never thought about it that it's actually so it can be ha have such an impact but th and, and there's also Go for, go for it, Andrew. <laughs> well, and we didn't even touch now on willingness to pay. 
Um, I think willingness mm. to pay is super interesting. Um, when you start digging into what different customers across different regions are willing to pay for the same service. We've got a bunch of studies on that. Um, and, you know, I won't quote any numbers here because I don't have them in front of me, but uh, we can we can link to them in the show notes mm-hmm. about how certain countries are completely willing to pay 15, 20% more than your home territory and others are, are unwilling to pay any more than 80% of perhaps your home territory. And so that's another way of maximizing economic value by changing pro- the actual price in those different territories to align to their willingness to pay. That's that's really interesting because when I think about willingness to pay, I obviously, the way I've been used to it is, you know, figuring out within one market, uh, interviewing people and trying to find the uh, right price point. But now that you said it, the difference between countries, uh, that's something that I probably wouldn't have even thought about, that there can be that big of a difference between the willingness to pay between between markets. Mm. That's fascinating. All right. All right. Now, enough of this. <laughs> enough of this. Uh, let's move on. So the pricing actually gives us a nice segue to the uh, uh, self-serve model. Um, so what do you think, um, Andrew, what is the impact that self-serve model actually have on growth i'm sure you have lots to say about this (laughs) so um the vast majority of the businesses we serve are self-serve or have a hybrid motion so they're doing self-serve as well as sales-led um i think it has it has significant implications for your for your business model because you are likely to have a much you know, larger top of funnel in terms of your acquisition. Um, lots of companies coming in or people coming in and testing your products and services, probably a lower conversion rate from those into paid um, than you would from a normal opportunity being created by a sales team. Um, but we, we, we do see in our data that it correlates with lower customer acquisition cost overall and higher net promoter score. Um, there's something about that ability to come in and test and trust, build trust with a company because you're able to actually see the value in front of you. So I'm a big fan. Um, I think that there are a bunch of inconvenient truths around self-serve that we need to address. The first is that self-serve doesn't mean no sales reps. In fact, I think it's Adam Schoenfeld who's done some really great research over this. Um, Once you get past about 300 staff, SaaS businesses that look like they're product-led are probably hiring sales reps at a faster rate than sales-led businesses. Oh, really? Why why is that? Well, well, we've done the that? hard yards in the early stage of mm. actually building this audience and building this perhaps freemium customer base um, or building a self-serve customer base. And now they've got all these data points. You know, people are moving from the MQL to the PQL, product qualified leads, um, where now salespeople can be much more efficient by jumping into communications with active accounts who are not paying or have been self-serve on low plans and can now be mi- migrated up to team plans or enterprise plans. Um, and so they, they find that that's working. And so they're hiring reps faster than perhaps a more linear process if you added a rep or two every quarter if you're just doing that as your only motion um, and so perhaps you have less in the beginning uh, and then you catch up over time so that yes interesting sales self-serve does not mean no sales reps i think that's the first thing yeah. <laughs> um, and, and and then i think it's really important to recognize that self-serve again is about reducing friction that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make sure there is nothing in the way of um, of a buyer coming, trying, testing value, and actually experiencing that value. 
And the way I think about it is that, you know, when you do outbound and ABM, the biggest problem is getting into the room of the buyer. And when you're doing self-serve, the biggest problem is building the systems and processes. So you can be out of the room so they can see all of that themselves. So there are also big challenges there. Your product has to be good enough. You've got to be testing and iterating and releasing new product much faster. The demands of your customer are felt in terms of your usage data much stronger. Uh, it's very visceral. It's not just a, a bad reaction in a sales meeting. They'll just stop using using the plan that they, they'd signed up for. Um, it's much harder to get qualitative customer data. You see much more quant data, um, but actually it's harder to get that, that actual feedback and color. Um, yeah, so I think there's a whole bunch of things that are hard about self-serve as well. But do you actually see like higher conversion rates then? Absolutely. So once you get, if you see two two types of opportunity, one that has many users who are already using a product, and you can see that data, understand that data, and speak with them, and you have an opportunity which is completely outbound, you know, they maybe had a discovery call and nothing else, um, then yes, intuitively, I would imagine there is a much higher conversion rate. And you also, there are businesses correlated as a good example of a business that has been built off the back of this, you know, adding, you know, um, feeding sales teams with product qualified accounts and product qualified leads um, for the purpose of seeing better conversion and a more efficient sales team. So yeah, it's interesting to see a whole category of marketing technology and sales technology being built on exactly that premise. So if a company is wondering uh, whether they should uh, start moving towards a more self-serve uh, model, um, what do... Are there any reasons or any kind of um, red flags or triggers that they should be kind of looking at um, to give them an indication that they might benefit from a self-serve model? Yes, so I think companies that are likely to benefit from a self-serve model will have a, a, a strong product team that's releasing frequently and is able to respond to insight. They will have a reasonably fast time to value. Some products just take a whole while. They're very complicated to configure. They take a whole while before you actually see that value. And they're just not so appropriate for self-serve because someone's going to get bored or is going to get you tired before they get to that point of value realization. Um, so I think you know th those would be two reasons not to choose self-serve. Um, I think also if you're reliant on a small number of customers with a very high price point as part of your you know, economic model, again, that's probably not so appropriate for a self-serve. But even if you don't become self-serve, I think the idea of reducing friction to your buyer and providing more value up front is a universal truth. So whether that is publishing research, whether that is an interactive demo, whether that is publishing your prices publicly, um, whether that is building a new feature that people can um, use free and then upgrade from that to the paid version by talking to your sales team. You know, there are lots of things you can learn when it comes to audience and community. Um, community building and audience building is 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 the you know companies who who are product led they tend to over index in those because that's how they get their mass conversion uh, into their into their product led base and so you know I think there's a whole bunch of things there that you can learn from even if you're still going to adopt a sales led approach. Okay, so how about then if you know a company decides that right we need to move towards a more self serve model we think this might be good for us. Uh, what kind of steps should be, should they take? What is the process that they should be aware of? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think firstly is looking through the onboarding process of a current customer and seeing where are the points of friction there that you need to productize or you need to put people against them. Um, so, you know, let's use a practical example. Um, Paddle, 
we used to have a self-serve offering. We, we didn't for a while. We, we put up a new one. Um, I think it was in March of this year. One of our biggest kind of points of friction in the self-serve onboarding is our risk processes. Because we're taking a bunch of fundamental liability on behalf of our customers, we have to do KYB and KYC and other risk checks on them. And that can take a long time, particularly we weren't we weren't set up the amount of demand we saw. And so there were long delays on people's risk checks as they were trying to onboard into our product. Um, wasn't a very good experience for people who were trying to onboard in that cohort. Um, and so thinking through ahead of time, what are those points of friction within your onboarding? And then, as we've said, you know, what, what are the points of the kind of the magic moments when they actually see value? Um, and, and are they in the product early enough? That someone is going to be able to a, come in, poke around, um, and then actually see some value and want to continue using or share the product. So those are two things to think about. The third one is just, do you have the data infrastructure to do this? It's just a, a different setup than managing you know, meetings into opportunities. If you're suddenly getting a much higher proportion of people who are engaging with uh, your product or a portion of your product and how you measure that um, and how you identify the signal in the noise of people who are engaging deeply versus not engaging deeply or how you map you know, emails to different accounts so that you understand when you've got a, a, you know, a, a threshold volume of people from a certain account who are engaging with that product. The, the data infrastructure needs to be rethought too. So those are three things you should consider. Okay, thank you so much for those answers, Andrew. And now um, it's our final segment, our Fast Five segment. It's pretty simple. The name tells it all. Five questions, five simple answers. Are you ready? Go for it, yep. What book or books are you currently reading? I'm reading um, a book by Louis Gerstner right now called Who Says Elephants Can't Dance, which is about IBM's turnaround. Oh, I love that title. <laughs> um, with animals. <laughs> a SaaS company you love and why? Oh, I've got too many favorites on this one. <laughs> um, let's go for Gong. Okay, why? Um, I love how, you know, we've, we've talked for years about the marketing sales divide and passing information and communication and metrics between the different vocabularies and functions of marketing and sales. And I love the fact that I can just dive into Gong, put in a few keywords and listen to sales calls um, and listen to how people are reacting to our messaging, listen to how we're positioning our product for our field team. Uh, so yeah, it brings sales and marketing together. What is your favorite place to read about growth? Um, I think I mentioned OpenView earlier. Kyle Poyer at OpenView, I think, is fantastic. I love his writing, uh, so he'll be my go-to. What is the most important growth metric, in your opinion? <laughs> there isn't one. <laughs> I think that's the first time somebody has said Some that. Honest <laughs> feedback. Finally. It depends. Yeah, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, there's been a lot of advice, but one more. What is your best piece of advice for fellow SaaS marketers? Read everything you possibly can. Understand how everyone is doing it. Um, but re be really principled about making sure you discover and define your growth model. What's working for your business in your market for your product? It's probably going to take learnings from everyone else, um, but I just don't believe we can apply all of these frameworks and they have the same success in our circumstance. So just you know, listen and learn to everything you can, um, but take some time to think about how it applies in, in your specific circumstance. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Andrew, for this and coming to on our podcast. Uh, it was absolute pleasure. Pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much. No, and have a fantastic rest of your day. 
<laughs> you too. Perfect. Thank you. And that's it. Thanks everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And in fact, we would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so tell us what you thought. Anything we missed, anything you'd like us to revisit. Let's keep the conversation going on on Twitter at SARS Growth Hub or on LinkedIn at the SARS Growth Hub podcast. And if you don't want to miss the next episode, make sure you subscribe to Growth Hub on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or SoundCloud. Until next time, cheers! cheers.